Hello, everybody. Welcome to No Small Thing, the podcast dedicated to helping you live a less certain and more curious life. I'm Scott. And I am Mace. Welcome to episode 112, everybody. Bam. We are here tonight to talk about white supremacy and defense mechanisms. What a topic. I Topics? I would... Combined I, topic. I, we didn't look it up, but I would be surprised if there is... An episode, a podcast episode out there with this title. I Googled white supremacy and defense mechanisms and didn't get anything. Yes. I got like a psychological article that was about white supremacy in psychology and psychologists and their Mm. approach towards people. Okay, we're already off and running. But I didn't get anything that was trying to help us understand white supremacy in the context of breaking down defense mechanisms, which is what I think we're here to do tonight. The world needs this. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I actually think it does. You know, I actually think it might. Yeah. So we got this idea to do this. No, it doesn't. Let's not do the episode. We're out. <laughs> Bye. <the> <laughs> we got this idea to do this episode, I think, after we did the Black Lives Matter episode, mm-hmm. because we, we definitely wanted to commit to this to continuing to have topics where we're trying to dismantle white supremacy or trying to be anti-racist. We're trying to bring forward this as part of the conversation. And I think both of Scott and I really, correct me if you insert how you're feeling. Well, I'm going to correct you. Yeah. (laughs) I, I know for me, I think that it's the space in which I can be contributing to the conversation is in terms of whiteness and speaking to whiteness and, speaking out of my wide experience and our podcast so much is about curiosity, but our podcast so much is also about, it just comes up. We do Enneagram episodes every five weeks. We talk about defense mechanisms. We're really curious about the human psyche or why we do what we do. Um, And so I think that as a white person, it is important that we talk about whiteness. And then as we continue to break down awareness, I think it's really essential that we bring into our conversations around awareness, awareness towards the way we're participating in white supremacy or the way we're participating in the centering of whiteness. What, what, what about that? What I disagree with? I don't know. I just want to, <laughs> I don't want to speak for you. <laughs> I'll be like Aranyo and Beatrice and say, anything you want to add to yeah, that, Scott? Yeah. <laughs> I think, I always think it's so funny. Like we're talking before the podcast and you just switch it on so quickly. You know, it's like, <laughs> this is good stuff. You said it so well. Um, yeah. I mean, I think you're, you're setting the tone for the conversation really well. I think we get a little slightly more serious and less playful. Although I actually do think it is important to remain playful in these conversations um, in order for something productive to happen. Cause if you're rigid and fearful and arrogant and whatever, Probably not going to learn very much. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, or about yourself or anybody for that matter. Yeah, totally. You're going to hide. That's something to say. If, if, if a conversation s- starts getting a little less playful, I mean, this is a whole other side note, but like, uh, I, I mean, I mean at, we're already could just get into defense mechanisms. Here we are. You know, um, I mean, I, ah, uh, shoot. I am a little bit concerned sometimes with, this is to put it lightly, like our ability to have civil discourse as a society. I, I, I'm saying this as a white straight Christian man. I feel like I have a little bit more of an obligation to have 
in heavy quotes, civil discourse. Mm-hmm. And I think it's on me and others to make space for like anger. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm not going to ask certain marginalized folks to watch their tone with me or, you know, soften their anger. But I do like the idea of being a time and place for civil discourse, for being able to like share an idea and not have somebody like erupt at the idea of like curious and now you share your idea and I'm going to listen to that and we're having a conversation, you know? Yeah. I just don't know exactly the best way to go about that and who should be participating in it and who should even be observing and listening to those conversations. But, ah. Yeah. Yeah, which I guess... We are having it as two white people with a primarily white audience in mind. Yeah, exactly. So I think that that's, that's a good way to kind of set the stage in terms of this conversation. Our whole podcast is... This, we're dedicated to this idea of being curious. Um... But yeah, we are definitely speaking to a primarily white audience. And I hope that our conversation would just help and be, I mean, I think we're, in doing this, we're examining white supremacy in ourselves Mm -hmm. and then inviting you to do that alongside us. And I think it is kind of, we're creating this space where we're learning and growing and kind of throughout our whole podcast, you'll find it in things like our Enneagram episodes where we're mistyping people or going back and readjusting how we're thinking about things. Mm -hmm. And so it's a little scary putting this podcast out there and being like, this is recorded and it's put out there for the universe to hear. But we also, so much of what our podcast is, is saying we're going to have a conversation and we hope that us having a conversation gives you space and inspiration to have a conversation too. So we hope that by having this conversation, it, it helps and invites you to also have these conversations around white supremacy in your life and defense mechanisms. We think I, I'm excited for this because I do think that it's a really fascinating combination or lens of which to approach these two topics, kind of bringing them together. I, I'm excited to think about them together. I think it's been good for me to think about them together. I hope I hope our conversations are productive conversations, meaning I hope it's not just like us patting ourselves on the back about our own perceived right opinions. I think we always learn a lot. I, I, I know already in this conversation tonight, I will learn something. Yeah, I can guarantee that I will probably learn something. And I can I, guarantee I know that I'll probably, probably learn probably something. Probably is not the right word. I, the thing is, <laughs> That's a great I'm, guarantee. I, I'm saying let's probably <laughs> learn something and more. I have a feeling that as we break down the defense mechanisms, it's less learn or maybe it is learn might be the right word, but it's I, I know things will be brought up for me as mm-hmm. we talk about mm-hmm. this. I know that as we unpack defense mechanisms and think through them, the lens of white supremacy, inevitably examples of white supremacy existing in my life will probably come yeah. to the forefront. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, yeah. Curious conversations. I, I guess curious I just say like, um, we're, we're, we're always trying to examine a little bit more, mm-hmm. you know, um, not just spout off. Yeah. Even though it might sound like we're spouting off sometimes. Whatever. Should we get right into it? Well, yeah. I think that we wanted to begin by explaining what white supremacy is or just reading a few definitions of white supremacy. Um, And then I think I'll I'll just give a quick breakdown for people who are listening. Um, We want to explain white supremacy. And then I think both Scott and I will share like really, really brief, Mm -hmm. maybe just stories or journeys or anecdotes of kind of where we are, like in terms of white supremacy. I, I whatever think our, that means. I don't know uh, what whatever that means. it is for either of us. I mean, however you want to take that, like uh, how do you look back at your past and see right. hints of white supremacy and maybe how defenses have flared up yes. at times. 
I think I have more defenses around this topic than you do, just because maybe I'm a little older. Um, yeah, I don't. I I don't know if that's true. You seem less defensive than me. Maybe when it comes to this sort of stuff. Um, and then after we talk about that. We will just simply go through a bunch of defense mechanisms. We have this book that we love. We use it for all our defense mechanism episodes. Why do I do that? Yep. Um, by what's his name? Joseph Burgo. By Joseph PhD. Burgo. <laughs> PhD. Recommended everybody. to me by Peter Rollins. <laughs> oh, oh, check out yep. Peter Rollins' episode on parapraxis. Yep, yep. Um, and so we're just going to go through the defense mechanisms and honestly just try and unpack how these defense mechanisms might be perpetuating white supremacy or allowing white supremacy to continue in you. Um, and so kind of going through that. And I think so much of the reason why we want to be doing this kind of topic is that dismantling white supremacy and unpacking white supremacy and decentering whiteness begins and ends with you. Hmm. Um, I was listening to a podcast and I want to, I want to reference the person that the podcast, she wrote a book, and this is what she, like, really talked about in the whole podcast. Um, it is, oh, no, I clicked another podcast, and I've you lost my reference. <gasps> okay, wait, I have to find it. Okay. Um, Layla Saad wrote this book called Me and White Supremacy. And at the very end of this podcast, the host of the episode, I think it's Sam Sanders, asks her what are, like, three tips or whatever um, in helping to dismantle white supremacy. And the first one, which she was like, this is pretty much the essential one is it starts and ends with you. And mm -hmm. so I think that that's what we are hoping to do with this episode in the sense of remind us that it starts and ends with us and that this work is, it's personal and it requires, it requires work. It requires pain it requires unpacking these defenses that we've built it requires dismantling it requires change yeah it requires all these things um and i think scott and i are both early on in this journey of kind of unpacking and re-examining and dismantling and it's a journey and we will never be on like we'll never be done doing this mm -hmm. um i think that that's, we're white <laughs> i think that's just important to know it's like it's inevitable will always having to be work, will always having to be learn, learning um, and growing. And so I guess we hope that, I don't know, you would be alongside with us in that way. Yeah, I mean, I want to give, I, I don't know if credit's the right word. I mean, we, it's not like we just started talking about this yesterday. I mean, that came out in our Black Lives Matter episode. Like, we've been thinking about this for a long time, and I think it's just something that, grows in significance and depth the more you think about it. Like, you never get to the end of this. It's yeah. it's always worse than you thought, and there's always more. The moment you figure something out and, in heavy quotes, dismantle it or re deal with it or acknowledge it, another big thing comes around the corner. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. Like, a lot of people say that when it comes to all these things. When it comes to, like, using gender pronouns and it comes to talking about racism, it's like, when does it end? Like when it doesn't, you it know, doesn't. It's like it's, we're just going to keep learning and we, growing. We can cr continue to grow and make more space and yeah. learn and dismantle. Um, one thing that came up uh, in this podcast, the same person was she was really talking about this idea of white exceptionalism. And I think that we're at risk of that. You and I in mm. this podcast, mm. even this idea of like, but we're the good ones, you know, we're here, we're talking about it. We knew about racism before all these things happened. And I think, that Oh, 
Well, that's not the posture I'm taking. No, I... We're I, in jeopardy of it. I don't think that's the posture, but I do think that we are in jeopardy, and yeah. I want to name that, that it's like, I don't... I think it's really just important to name and say that it's like, there aren't any, like, quote-unquote good or bad whites. It's like, we're <laughs> all a part of this. Like, it doesn't matter how many books you've read. It doesn't matter, you know, you can't... You're not... I think, I, for me, it was almost important to hear this idea of, like, you're not, like, this white exception. You haven't, like, figured it out, and you won't ever, you know? And right. you, you have to continue to do the work. Yeah, well, okay. no, that's the right posture. I think, I think that's, like, that's, like, a way to combat defense mechanisms. It's, like... Don't worry about ever getting it right or perfect. You'll you'll always you'll always have problematic elements to the way you exist in the world and the way you think and talk and your perspectives. And it's just just hold that lightly and move forward. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard. I'm I'm saying it's hard. Yeah. But do your best. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think that's another uh, just a big piece. It's like this requires sac- like heavy quote sacrifice, but it. it it does in the sense of it requires giving emotional, intellectual, physical, monetary. It requires all aspects of who you are to commit mm-hmm. to this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Should I read a definition of white supremacy? Sure. Do you have any other thoughts before I do this? I always have thoughts, but I'll put them on hold for now. All right. <laughs> put your, hold, your thoughts on hold. Okay. <laughs> I have two definitions of white supremacy because I think it's, I mean, this is like a really big term. That's, I think there's probably just so many definitions. Um, but I'll read two. This first one comes from Elizabeth Batita Martinez. And it, it came up a lot as I was looking for um, definitions. And it comes from like this workshop called Challenging White Supremacy. Yeah, I just say if you have a definition in your mind or you think you have a better definition or you think there's... Don't be listening to this and be like, oh, they got it wrong. That's the wrong definition. It's like we're just reading some yeah. to start the conversation. Yeah. Um, okay, so white supremacy is an historically based, institutionally perpetuated system of exploitation and oppression of continents, nations, and peoples of colors by white peoples and nations of the European continent for the purpose of maintaining and defending a system of wealth, power, and privilege. Woo! Already, it, it brings up this idea of defending. It like makes me think of this idea of defense mechanisms. What they're doing is it's trying to defend this equilibrium, this peace. It's trying to defend power. It's trying to defend safety. It's Well, that's what I want to talk about, too. And we haven't really talked about it, but that's why we have a podcast. Of like individual defenses around this topic, but societal, systemic defenses as a race or a people or like, you yeah. know, like... We're, I don't know where we white people are this big giant entity with defenses up yeah. like yeah. physical, literal like weapons, but then like psychological defenses yeah. like that people can't see it or don't want to acknowledge it. I do think it's interesting to think about this idea of like the collective defense mechanism. Yeah. Like it's not just an individual. I do think, yes, it is an individual thing, but then that then gets brought into a societal value. Yeah. It gets brought into a way a whole group of people responds. Yeah. And then it becomes the central way of responding. Side note, while it's on my mind, just getting right into it, and then we'll read the second definition. Mm-hmm. But this is just a very low-key example, but it's something where it's like, I don't think you and I know what it means to come from extreme wealth. And I remember watching this documentary that this guy made years ago, and it was the son or the whatever 
the the person that would receive the inheritance or is born into who knows I, I don't know how it works yeah he's part of the Johnson and Johnson family mm-hmm. which makes most of our products yeah like know? the baby stuff yeah all the stuff dental floss and toothbrushes and all sorts of stuff and they're just they're one of the longest generations go back in terms of like kind of getting a monopoly on a lot of different types of products and now they just you know live off of that yeah and he's this young guy probably at the time this probably came out like 10 years ago and he's just like we should talk about this you know and it, and it becomes very apparent in this documentary it's like an unspoken rule we don't talk about money like that's like bad a bad look like it's kind of like this is a secret it's private it's it's not something you talk about and it's it's almost like a denial thing. Yeah. Like, it's like if we just don't talk about it, yeah. it's not it doesn't exist. It's not I don't have to deal with we it. We don't really have that much money. Yeah. yeah. You might be one of the most wealthy families in in America, but no, nah, no, I mean, you we'll know. Talk about other things. Yeah. 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 <laughs> don't want to acknowledge it. Displacement? Maybe. Maybe. Lots of different defenses. Yeah. Okay. I just do you have another definition? I do have another definition. Yeah. This other one comes from Wikipedia. Okay. <laughs> but this one I read and I thought it was good because it, it it kind of gets more in expansion. And I think that people might be listening and be like, white supremacy? I'm not a white supremacist. It's like... Google, look up Wikipedia. Well, find n- out. no, more just like this, <laughs> this idea of like... <laughs> I just say something as a joke and you always correct it. <laughs> I like, can't take a joke. <laughs> um, well, honestly, I will say Wikipedia is sometimes underrated. It, it, it does provide mostly good information. Yeah, I yeah. mean it's complicated, but I like this definition. But yeah. I guess I guess I'm just trying to make this disclaimer of people who maybe are like white supremacy. I'm not a white supremacist. This isn't for me. But it's like, no, we live in a in a society that is upholding white supremacy. Yeah, you are participating in it. Yeah, your very existence is. Yeah, sometimes it. I guess we need to say some things that just need to say that to clarify. Yeah, yeah. it's like if you think white supremacy isn't. If if you think white supremacy isn't a part of your life, think again. Yeah. Maybe. Absolutely. <laughs> That's the whole point. Okay. Here yeah. we go. White supremacy or white supremacism is the racist mm. belief that white people are superior to people of other races and therefore should be dominant over them. White supremacy has roots in the now discredited doctrine of scientific racism and often relies on pseudoscientific arguments. Like most similar movements, such as neo-Nazism, Nazism? White supremacists typically oppose members of other races as well as Jews. The term is also used to describe a political ideology that perpetuates and maintains the societal, political, historical, or institutional domination by white people as evidenced by historical and contemporary socio-political structures, such as the Atlantic slave trade, Jim Crow laws in the United States, the set of white Australian policies from the 1890s until the mid-1970s, and apartheid in South Africa. Different forms of white supremacism put forth different conceptions of who is considered white, and different groups of white supremacists identify various racial and cultural groups as their primary enemy. In academic usage, particularly in usage which draws on critical race theory or intersectionality, the term white supremacy can also refer to a political or socioeconomic system in which white people enjoy a structural advantage, mm-hmm. privilege, mm-hmm. over other ethnic groups on both a collective and individual level. That is a, a quarter's worth of material. I know. Each I know. sentence is I a three-hour lecture. But it's good. It's good to have as a placeholder. But what I want to say to that, just to like 
come down from that big, deep definition. A lot of words. Bring us down. Bring us down to say, here's, here's what I think this episode is contributing. The, as we know, I am a Facebook debater. Not mm-hmm. not as aggressive as I've been in the past. You're a Facebook discusser. I pay, thank you. I gl- I'm glad that you said that. I said it playfully. Yeah. But yeah, no, I like the fact that I would like host a mature discussion, a civil discussion, trying to see the best in all viewpoints and intentions. But um, this is this is my this is my this is my uh, uh, like uh, anxiety or tension or frustration, I guess, with a lot of those conversations is. Somebody, there's, there's most people actually, and this is why I think this is a good way to approach this conversation. Most people are, are going to essentially repeat that Wikipedia post in their own words, louder and louder in all caps over and over again on Facebook. And I'm watching them do it. What they're, do you mean by that? I mean, I mean, they, their assumption is that this person just hasn't had it explained to them. And if I explain it better... And more thoroughly in longer posts, then they'll come around. I'm like, no. White supremacy? Yeah. You mean? The defense okay. mechanism is so deep. Yeah. And, and it's triggering it the more you explain it. They're yeah. going to double down. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, I just watch people do I like roll my eyes. I'm like, I guess, I guess I'm even learning as I'm saying this out loud. I, I, in my posts, am trying to disarm the defense mechanism a little bit. Yeah. You know? I wonder, as you're saying this out loud, it does make me wonder if, if this episode or this conversation is also helpful for us as, because this was the second thing that that person in the podcast said, it helps us to have conversations with other people about this. Like, I hope so. If having an awareness of maybe what defec- defense mechanisms are at play when somebody is wanting to not talk about it or wanting to avoid it or wanting to do certain things around it, if having an awareness of what defense mechanisms could be happening, that might help the conversation to be more fruitful when we're more aware of what might be happening psychologically with that person Yeah, as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Man, this is such a great combination of things to think about. I just watch these people get into debates, and I'm like, man, if you said, and it, it, it proves true almost 100% of the time. I mean, there's there's very few times where it doesn't work, and I'm like a little shocked. I'm like, mm-hmm. well, it didn't work. But if you say, hey, I really, I really see your point, and I understand, and I actually see where you're coming from. I do. I yeah. see where you're coming from. Yeah. And I see your point. And I think you were trying to say this, and I see your, your heart's in the right place, and you're trying your best. And the person's like, oh. And I'm like, now have you considered this? <laughs> <laughs> you, you like get them and then you yeah. jab them. <laughs> now, I don't know. I've never done a study or anything over 10 years of Facebook discussions if anything's ever gotten through or changed anybody. But I think I think it has. I bet so. I think yeah. so. I think your consistency, honestly. Fr- Be friends gone on Facebook. Scott's out there <laughs> discussion. <laughs> okay. Should we take a break and then come back and do journey, or should we just get do mini journey? Right I think mini journeys right mini now. Mini journey. Yeah. Okay. Who wants to start? I don't care. Okay, I'll start. Great. Um, here, here's not. I'm not doing my journey of white supremacy. Yeah. I'm doing a free form again. Everybody, this is like this is what we say about the podcast. It's like it's like you've happened upon us in a dinner party. You're hanging out at a dinner party, you know? and yeah. Macy and Scott are in the corner, and they're talking, and you're like, "What are these fools up yeah, to?" Yeah, that's exactly. And this right. is what we're talking <laughs> yeah. about. So I'm talking about my journey with defense mechanisms and white supremacy. And so I, I was saying this to you on the phone earlier today, but um, I'm trying to describe what it's like when somebody brings this up. Because even today, I, I, I sense something flaring up in me mm-hmm. when people want to critique whiteness. Now, 
I'm not saying I've arrived in any way. Like, I think it's good. The caveat is right to say, we'll be unpacking this our entire lives. You never yeah. arrive. Don't think you're going to arrive. Cause then that adds a lot of stress to your life. Truth. You know, then you think you arrived and some, some, somebody in the universe is giving you a gold star or a pin and you're like, I arrived. I did it. I just mailed white supremacy. And you're like, no, no, no. But, um, and then you're stressed when somebody brings it up again. <laughs> uh, but I don't, I can't, I can't even right now recall the first time I felt anything like this, but I do know as I look at my life, I was not in any way taught to question whiteness. I wasn't, that wasn't anything that was brought up growing up. Yeah. I definitely was taught that slavery and, and racism had been fixed. You know, we dealt yeah. with that. I remember thinking like, I remember thinking Oh, my grandma, I remember thinking this exact thought. My, oh, my grandma was around at the time of racism, hmm. you know? Hmm. I was like, oh, man, I mean, maybe my grandma was, like, racist, you know? And it's yeah. like, and even like, the category. Yeah, no, now. And now we're just all in school together, and there's equal rights, and I can't believe that happened. And it's such an easy, I mean, even today. You want, a, you want to be able to, you want that to be the thing you can accept. You want racism to be done, yeah. dealt with as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. And the way we tell history, I mean, I was listening to the 1619 podcast today and, and it's just like the way we talk about Abraham Lincoln and the people in this podcast were saying, yeah, no, he is the great emancipator. He did do some good things, but he, uh, he and he, and he was wanting to free slaves, but then there's like these uh, overlooked speeches sometimes that just don't get their, the due credit or yeah. the due attention. And it was this thing of like, Yes, you're equal, and I actually mourn. I'm, I'm definitely paraphrasing here, but it was a speech that they read. I mourn what we've done to African people and mm-hmm. black people in this country, and it's terrible and, and utterly and always wrong, and the solution is we're just not supposed to be together. Like We need to get them back over to Africa. We need to separate. We can't live in a society together. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like, this is Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. You know, and he and he wasn't even saying one's better than the other. It's just like we're not meant to live in the same country. Like, get out. He's like, this isn't working. Yeah, yeah, that's that's your problem. You know, that we mm. want to not think about. Mm. Which is, I mm. mean, that is really hard for me to get in that headspace. Yeah. I'm like, what the hell are you guys talking about? Yeah, I don't. Okay, side note. So, I think I was handed this worldview that like it's been dealt with. We're all equal now, and then I just know that there was a this. Well, I mean, we were thinking about earlier today, like the Pledge of Allegiance, which is just a, such a creepy and strange thing when you really think about it. And that, yeah. was, that was said all growing up till I graduated high school with no questions. to the flag of the United <laughs> States of America. Hand on your heart. And to the republic for which it stands. Creepy. One nation under God. Yeah. Indivisible. With liberty, liberty and justice. Liberty and justice for we all. We know it. Yeah. For all. I no, guess it's like, why do I know it by heart? But I do. I guess if you're a person that's taking that seriously and then there's people kneeling at a football game, you'd be like, wow, but I've been pledging reverence for America. Yeah. I mean, whatever. But, um, I think for me, this is me, me very personally now. Yes. I was obsessed with Superman. I was obsessed with heroes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's like the nostalgia and the sort of like, um, lore yeah. of myself growing up was like Superman and all that that entailed. And what is, I mean, we can just do a whole episode on Superman. What, what, what does that represent? Like this white American exceptionalism and heavy quotes, the white savior complex literally yeah. through this superhero, but then all superheroes, like even in the Marvel <laughs> movies now, it's like mostly white men. You got Captain America, you got Thor, 
You got Iron Man. You got Ant Man. You got the guy from Guardian of the Galaxy. I Batman? Mean, you got, well, that's not MCU, but like, oh. yeah, that's DC. <laughs> <laughs> I know so But I'm little. just talking about like the Marvel Universe. I guess you don't watch those movies anyways, but like, it's, it's like the main, the main good guys are still, even today, all white men. Yeah. And yeah. they, and so like, I, I just want to say like, in terms of white supremacy, I was so, I e- so easily got to find myself in that. Mm-hmm. Combine that with Christianity. Mm-hmm. It's like also Jesus. Also, yeah, there's all of these images around you that are telling you that you are the mm-hmm. you're the best. Mm-hmm. You are what everyone is looking to be. I'm, you're the hero. I literally thought that my existence was set up to save people. I'm here to save. There's pain in the world. It's on yeah. me to save it. Yeah. And honestly, society is set up to the point where it's like you step out in that and you're celebrated. Whoa, a hero. Like, right. Uh, I mean, especially, I guess now we're combining Christianity, which is actually probably another important thing. Huge, to, huge. Yeah. Piece. And also, I'm a Christian who's going to save people. Yeah. Whoa, and I felt it. I felt it. I just want to... felt the power. I'm trying to unpack it. I'm trying to say, like, if that's so wrapped up in your identity, when somebody starts questioning it, it feels like an, the most personal attack. It feels like your yeah. very existence is being obliterated. Hmm. So that's why I can say I feel sympathy sometimes and I, or empathy. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly long past those early shocks, you know? Um and I don't think there was ever a time where there was like a, a legit heavy crisis, but I do remember feeling defensive. Yeah. Like, no, don't take this away from me. Like it's so, and then you add like, you know, just nostalgia about things we've been talking about recently, like nostalgia about police officers, nostalgia about war heroes, nostalgia about veterans. And mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, you definitely want to honor veterans at the same time. Are they beyond critique? Is war beyond critique? Like, thank you for your sacrifice. And also war sucks. Like, yeah, let's talk about what we were fighting for. <laughs> yeah. Who we were interjecting. And yeah. You know, yeah, totally. So I think that's just, I think that's a defense. That, 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 that context is something that is what is, I think, causing some of my personal defensiveness sometimes. And I think you're Don't take in- that away from me. Don't take the, 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 the narrative yeah. It feels so nice. It feels so convenient. Hmm. And it's like sometimes we talk about that like uh there I sent you a picture of the t-shirt the other day like uh God give me the give give me the the I don't know the the privilege. No, I know. It's like it's something like being a mediocre white man. Hmm. There is something about that like it, you know just just existing as a white man in the world, you're automatically at least mediocre. doing great. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Doing pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> not just not just like financially or social standing wise, but just like it's what our society holds up. Like all these superheroes, that's just one example. I mean, all, all our presidents, you know, yeah. all our world leaders. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The rep- yeah, it's all it's all of those pieces. Yeah. I automatically I get to be to associated with those things. Yes, exactly. You know? And you automatically find yourself in those stories. You mm-hmm. automatically see yourself as the hero of the narrative. Mm-hmm. You automatically see yourself as someone who has the capability of reaching these heights. Yes. It's the, those possibilities are readily available for you. You know, as a kid, I'm sure you were like, I want to grow up and be, I mean, you probably wanted to be a pastor. Or a superhero. It, or a superhero, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and then, and then it's like nowadays, nowadays, I mean... Well, Nowadays in 2020, it, yeah. we're I out mean, here in the craziest year of our lives. Your voice isn't needed in this space. Yeah. It's like, you're like, what? 
oh my gosh, that's so hard to comprehend. And it's like, again, not now, not now, now I get it. But like, I was so shocked when anybody started, when I started hearing rhetoric like that, like, you're not needed in this space. You know, you almost have this, again, a metaphorical vision of yourself, like, with your superpowers busting down the doors and, and forcing yourself into spaces that you're not welcome into. Yeah, yeah that's white supremacy <laughs> at its full fledged form. Totally. I'm needed here. <laughs> not needed? What do you mean? What are you going to do without me? <laughs> well, it's, it's because, like, you think your perspective is the most important. It's exactly. like you guys are having some good discussions but I, i'm yeah, going to come in with the perspective there. you're yeah. naming it there yeah. yeah it's like this this perspective is the it's the ideal perspective it's mm-hmm. the people who founded this country mm-hmm. it's all these philosophers it's yeah. all these historical figures we've looked up all the authors that you've read they're all these white men so it's like it, it creates this idea that white men have the the most to say mm-hmm. absolutely like, hmm. boy oh boy oh boy, boy. Oh boy. Okay. okay journey I guess, sure, I, I think the thing that as you're talking, it makes me think of, I think you mentioned this on the phone th- today, this idea of, like, the American dream mm-hmm. or this idea of, like, you can you can make, you can define success for yourself. Yeah. So I grew up, and I guess I'll just, like, anecdote this. Anecdote so, it up. So I grew up in good old suburbs, and my dad grew up raising me with this like audio tape it was called the yeah. secret to success this by comes earl nightingale and it comes up because it, this is so much of what my ideology was growing mm-hmm. up as a kid so my dad grew up relatively poor and in a house with like a lot of kids and he was the oldest i think and Uh-oh. like <laughs> sorry um <laughs> And he definitely, like, he lived in his car in high school. You know, he, like, moved out, lived in his car because his family was just, like, it wasn't a great environment for him. He had to take care of his brother who had cancer Mm. when he was in high school. Mm. Like, my dad had a lot of adversity and a lot of, like, reasons in which my dad had to kind of work hard to fulfill the American dream. Yeah. So growing up as a kid, my dad had worked really hard and, like, found a way in this world through like business, through Mm -hmm. marketing, through this idea of if I believe that I can be successful, I will be. So my dad, when he was in college, I think, or not college, my dad didn't go to college, but in those ages, Mm -hmm. listened to this audio tape that's by Earl Nightingale. And the whole thing is this like study, I'm putting in quotes, that Earl Nightingale has done and it's this idea that the secret to success is believing in success. And so it's, they like follow these men. It's only men that they follow. And I'm, I'm assuming, honestly, it's probably only white men that mm-hmm. they follow in this study. And it's basically tracking the people who believe that they would be successful ended up being successful. And the ones who didn't believe they could be successful ended up not being successful. And so going to like soccer tournaments always on the, in the car going to a debate thing always we had to listen to this going to whatever always had to listen to this so for me I grew up with this kind of notion that was like if you like 
if you just think it can happen, it can happen. Anyone, success is for anyone. Mm -hmm. Anyone can have success. Anyone can make it work. My dad, he was poor. He had all these things going against him and he made it work. You know, he has now runs a business and like we have the success. And so growing up, this idea of the American dream was super, super like so much a part of my narrative, it was literally my college essay. Mm. Like, I wrote my college essays about Didn't the know secret that. success. Yeah. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Like, like, not, like, critiquing it, but just, like... No, not critiquing it. Huh. Like, upholding it. Whoa. Like, being like, this is this is the secret. I believed it. I, I mean, I... Uh, and now I'm graduating college. No, my... No, my... This was going into college. Oh, hi, this oh was you're, my, you're, you're an essay to get in? This was my essay to get uh, into okay, college. Okay, no, okay, just wait, because it. it goes full circle. Oh, okay, this wow. This is my essay getting into college. And I... It was so much. I mean, it's like it's interesting and emotional talking about it because it's like I was I really idolized my dad hmm. and saw my dad and saw myself and my dad so much and wanted to be so much like my dad. So this was like it was so essential to who I was, was the like, quote unquote, American dream, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps um, and it was, I remember it so vividly, it was like, it was in this, we, we talked about this in the Black Lives Matter episode, but I did this reconciliation program, and it was like through that, that this idea of the American dream just got really just like blown up, Yeah, you know, kind of realizing and seeing how much, A, first of all, we were talking about a second ago of representation or these images, like, yeah, the idea of American dream is something that a specific group of people is told that can happen and does happen for them. Mm -hmm. And there's so many factors of whiteness playing into my dad's story of his success. There's so many factors of whiteness playing into my own ability to have success. Um, And I remember doing the race race and feeling just like, this isn't fair. It's like, we're all starting at different points. The secret of success, no matter how much someone growing up in like, no matter how much someone believes in success, like a circumstance matters significantly about that person and whether or not they even think that success is available for them, their circumstance matters for them. I want to just say, like, I think, I think I just had a realization about, I mean, everybody, we're not going to explain it now, but if you want to interested, look up the race race, because it's always really interesting. There's Mm -hmm. lots of different iterations you can find on YouTube and stuff, but um, it's a great little exercise. But I do think I do think there's a defense mechanism or a nostalgia that kicks into something like that even because we get so excited about the potential story arc of the person that starts at the bottom and builds themselves up. Right. So we're like, oh, this black woman at the very back, well, this is going to be so exciting to see her succumb all of these. And it's like, well, I think the better thing is like, let's help her get the same fair start that we all did. Exactly. That's what we should all be exactly. wanting. And I think that's the thing is like the whole time I was like, this is fucking unfair. Yeah. Like <laughs> there's no getting around it. You started at a certain point. Success was more available to mm-hmm. you. Success mm-hmm. was more available. And I think it's interesting as I talk about this, this might be projection or it might be a way as we talk about defense mechanisms. I think I can avoid my own white supremacy by kind of pinning it on my parents. Mm. I think mean, even just saying it out loud right mm. now, I can see good, that good, happening. Good. You're modeling it. Good job. <laughs> I'm like, dang, that's interesting. But I remember maybe I, my last essay or I wrote an essay. It was towards the end of college. That was like, 
I wrote this essay about the secret of success and like here's all the ways in which like this isn't it. And I like I I came home and I told my parents and I mean it it like really I mean I honestly think there has probably been a rift between me and my family since like my since sophomore year. How of dare college. you critique the secret? No, honestly, since my sophomore year of college when I came home and was like Everybody yeah. white supremacy. Everybody what yeah. this lie? Like you've told me a lie my whole life. Yeah, you know, like I really came home hot with like, you lied to me. You yeah. know, and that's honestly how I feel. And it's not even like my parents lied to me. It's like everyone has lied. Society. Um. The world. But yeah, people. I think that that like uh, that's been that to me has like been one of the the most poignant and like ways in which I see I saw white supremacy like it's ingrained in me, you know? And it's like, I have to dismantle that. And I like tried to dismantle that in my own family. And I think it honestly like was a point of big tension for me. And I eventually just like, it was off topic for me to talk about white supremacy with my family. <laughs> uh, my I do think that's the, that's, the, that's been the beauty of the podcast is like a lot of the things both you and I want to talk about in regular discourse around the world is not on topic. Yeah, yeah. We're, like, we're not, talking, no, about we're not talking about that. I don't I don't want to hear again yeah. why like I think that's the thing, it's like it's frustrating for my dad to hear why I'm like, your success isn't that like I'm like no, I Oh, it's painful, man. It, it's painful. It belittles I feel painful it. for your dad right now. I know, I know. And I think that's I, I do think it is important for me to kind of see the ways in which I'm a part of that story yeah. and like see myself in that. And I do think also kind of what we're talking about, and we'll get into it more probably later of like seeing this defense mechanisms like it's more helpful in terms of helping people to see white supremacy when we can approach them and see the defenses they may have up. Mm. you know i think i definitely came in hot after like my first two or three years of you know kind of realizing the world in which i lived in and kind of building awareness and understanding colonialism understanding supremacy understanding all of these things uh I didn't. I didn't have any sensitivity to defenses that other people might have. I was just like, "You all are idiots. You told me a lie." I was like, "That is fools, the attitude. fools," <laughs> and honestly, like pissed. You know, like really, really mad. Which I wonder what that defense is in me. A lot well, of you know, probably. side note. Projection. I mean, strangely, projection we have maybe. Yeah. That's one that keeps coming up tonight for you. <laughs> uh, we haven't talked about defense mechanisms since our slot. Since our show, live, our live, live. Show. Remember, we could all come and gather together <laughs> as people. So sad. Low key, kind of sad, but also. What you and I are probably both not that mad about it. Oh, I think I was intrigued by the potential of what that was going to be, like a new chapter of the podcast. Yeah. We'll stop. Know? We'll have a new chapter. Yeah. Um, no new chapters. Okay, I want to read this little comment today great. that I saw on Facebook from a friend of mine. Her name's Stephanie. Miller. I don't think she'd mind me talking about her on the podcast, but she posts about it publicly on her Facebook. But I just liked, I just made me think about like you coming in hot with your parents because yeah. I do believe in this. And she says, I've been called a child multiple times now because I've gone public about protesting. If only the people calling me that realize that I actually take it as a compliment. I deeply believe the youth are the truth. They stand up to injustice. They bravely speak up. They don't tolerate hate. I work with kids and I'm honored to be called one. So here's to being a kid and throwing a damn tantrum. So I do think there is when you find out about racism and white supremacy and you come in hot, like, especially as a 22 year old, like that's valid. And that's what you and I actually are trying to do with our lives. And in a lot of ways is make space for that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I just, Oh, go ahead. Oh, it's just shame on adults for, for not being able to make space for that. You know? 
yeah yeah i don't know it's complicated i do know now like i had a conversation with my dad recently since like all things well i'm not saying shame on your parents that also sounds i'm not saying that i'm just like adults should make space for teenage angst yes <laughs> yes 100 percent um the youth pastor coming in hot <laughs> yeah. um I I do know. I do know that, honestly, I think so much. I think the Enneagram, I think our study of defense mechanisms for I've had more fruitful conversations because I can honestly step back a little bit mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. see some of the factors at play and see, I, I think also potentially it's age and also just like time and practice. It's like when I was in my 20s, I thought that I would be able to convince older folks in like an evening you know right right. and it's like no I think it's gonna take certain people like years and years and years of unpacking and I think it's like commitment on my behalf to to want to do that but then I don't know that's also complicated because I just I think in some way I'm in my own family I'm like kind of the buzzkill of the family (laughs) you know and I'm like I don't know how much I often want to be that role yeah I think that's it's complicated to kind of figure out. Well, that's an Enneagram thing. I mean, you <laughs> want to stand out, you know? So how are you going to do it? <laughs> I don't know if it's that as much. It's just like, it's probably that a little bit. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, that's my journey. I think we should break. Break. Anything uh, else you want to add? I'll just say, I think as you're talking, I think I'm realizing too for this episode, we're already an hour in, so it's like... Really? Well, 48 minutes. <laughs> it's like we... <laughs> So I think we're going to fly through the defense mechanisms. Yeah, we'll fly. This will be like fun and juicy, hopefully. Just like not going to get too caught up in the weeds about it. And I think just naming these and doing like a, a three to four minute reflection on each one really quick will be fun enough. Mm-hmm. But I think I'm realizing it's it's like it's I think my mindset was we're going to teach people about defense mechanisms or talk about white supremacy, white supremacy in the context of defense mechanisms. And it's going to help them look at themselves, which I do think that's the truth. Mm-hmm. Thing. But also, I think it's hopefully going to give people a little bit um, of steadiness or peace of mind or clarity or perspective when they're talking to people and they don't understand why the person isn't getting it. Yeah. It's like they, they have a defense going on. Yeah. It's, it's not like you need to say it louder or with more logic or send them more articles. There's something else going on that's more deeper and more deeper. If you get to that, you might have a shot. Yeah. You know, yeah. but how do you even get past these freaking defense mechanisms? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. I know so much of it is like, is that person willing? Yeah. You know, it's like someone has to be willing mm-hmm. to, to let go of something. You mm-hmm. have to be willing to change. Mm-hmm. You have to be open to transformation. It's hard, man. Law of sevens. Okay. <laughs> okay. When we come back, I don't even think we're going to take another break. When we come back, we're going to do defense mechanisms and we'll call it a night. Bam. See you later. Everybody, we are back. Scott has the book. Scott is going to be the reader for the rest of the evening. Now that we've set up white supremacy and mm-hmm. defense mechanisms, just reading these in that context will be enough. It's like, I know, it'll yeah. be like, just now put that lens on. Mm-hmm. We're going to be rereading this book 
through the critical lens of white supremacy. And it's the deeper thing when you're having these conversations and thinking about it in your own heart and when you're talking to other people. It's the thing. It's the mysterious thing. Mm-hmm. It's why people aren't accepting facts. Yep. Yep. Okay. So the first one is repression and denial. So let's think about this. The first one's repression. So think about that, the idea of like America committing so many terrible, unspeakable acts of violence uh, that our whole system is set up on mm-hmm. things. It's That's repression. We do not, as a society, want to think about that. No, no. We, we have, we have taken that off of our, like, we have put that behind us historically. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like you said, you, you grew up thinking racism was solved. Mm-hmm. That is an exact example mm-hmm. of repression being just societally played out. And trigger warning. I'm going to say something and, and, and whatever. But again, like, I also grew up thinking about, like, Indians. That was a big thing. And, yeah. and it's like, think about everybody. Go back and watch, like, Peter Pan, the Disney movie. It's like, that's like a very a scandalous portrayal of I mean the way Americans I think viewed indigenous folks at the time of like kind of this playful thing to make fun of and and something nostalgic from the past and cowboys and Indians cowboys and Indians it's a game it's a game I know when my kids play it I'm like let's yeah. let's talk y'all yeah. pause your game and let's <laughs> yeah. talk about what what's happening yeah <laughs> I remember just this is again this, this is to highlight my ignorance I remember seeing Dances with Wolves, which won the Academy Award and was a movie that was directed by Kevin Costner. Dances with Wolves is the story of a, a soldier in America who somehow gets put in an outpost. I mean, I haven't seen this in like 25 years, so I'm not describing it perfectly. Uh, where he's by himself and representative of the army out in the middle of nowhere and eventually sort of encounters these indigenous people and becomes friends with them. And they name him Dancing Dances with Wolves as part of their tribe, and it's. But at the time you're watching this and you're going, "Oh yeah, like there were native people, and 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 there were. I mean, it's like this thing that we're talking about now. And there were nice Americans that treated them well, and we and yes, people got yes. along. And uh, I mean, there's some horrific things in that movie too, for sure. Um, and there's another interesting movie that I'd love to go back and revisit called Last of the Mohicans with Daniel Day Lewis. But, anyways, all that to say. Um, don't want to think about the violence. Yeah. Amistad was another one I saw that's directed by well, Steve Spielberg. I mean, yeah. it's like when we think about what defense mechanisms are doing, and we were to really quickly break it down, like, psychologically or whatever, mm-hmm. it's like what defense mechanisms are doing is help mediate intense, the intense feelings, the intense mm-hmm. emotions, the mm-hmm. intense things and stuff. Defense mechanisms are essentially like putting a mask or they're interceding they're they're playing this role of of mediating or mitigating yes. these deeper Both. things mm-hmm. within us mm-hmm. and and they're good and they keep us alive right by and large but then they become problematic sometimes yes. oh let's just say that we always say defense mechanisms if you're wanting to wrap your mind around this plain and simple easy definition lies we tell ourselves to avoid pain Lies we tell ourselves to avoid. I mean, just that right there. Mm -hmm. Lies we tell ourselves to avoid pain. Repression. Put down the microphones. Episode is over. We're done. (laughs) Okay, repression. Repression addresses a much larger range of experiences, however. So he's saying this is like people think it's this, but it's way deeper. Almost any unacceptable or painful feeling might be repressed from awareness, be it anger, guilt, or grief, or any of these 
emotions. Repression was the first of the defense mechanisms to be identified by Sigmund Freud. Early in his career, as he moved away from the use of hypnosis, he discovered that there was a psychic force that prevented a person from becoming aware of unacceptable impulses or ideas. It operated by pushing them out of consciousness. So... That's fairly easy to understand. Pushing, pushing them out of consciousness. I think that's another as thing. As a society, I think that's another thing that's important <laughs> to name about white supremacy. It's it's like until it's been named, it is out of your conscious. Mm-hmm. Until it has been put in front of you, you're unconsciously doing things. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, I mean, it's almost like the Enneagram thought. It's like without judgment, without excuse. Yeah, you, you said know? that in a text yesterday. It was a good reminder. I was like, yeah, dang, wow. Um, like. As, and we, we talked about this with Ben Campbell in our Enneagram episode of like this idea of like growing responsibility, mm-hmm. like as things come into consciousness where we have, we're, we're held more responsible for yeah. it. But it's like so much of these things are happening unconsciously. We have to do the work of bringing it into consciousness in order to make change, mm. in order to transform. Mm. Mm-hmm. There it is. Side note, I guess, as it enters my mind, I do think whatever spiritual practice you engage in, it's like I do love the idea that, well, I I hate the idea, actually, that, like, certain streams of evangelical Christianity do, like, Kendall Creasy Dean also always called this McFaith, like a McDonald's version of faith. Yeah. Like a really cheesy, happy meal version of, like, Christianity, whereas, like, the Psalms and the Bible give like a, a lot of space for lament and crying and naming, like a lot of space for naming. Yeah. Yeah. And so that should be built into your systems of faith or spiritual practices. Like not like a way to get out of reality, no, but a way to enter no, into to it. To enter into it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So we have a tool. It seems collectively communally, cause we should be doing these things communally. But anyways, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. denial and awareness. So here's denial. De- so repression and denial are in the same chapter, chapter here, but. Whenever we employ denial, whether of a feeling or a fact, we are denying our own awareness. There it is. Oh, denying our own awareness. In other words, by using this particular defense mechanism, we refuse to recognize what we actually know on some level to be true, Hmm. thus splitting our awareness and negating a part of it. Putting it that way makes it sound like a conscious decision. On the contrary, all defense mechanisms occur unconsciously. So that's another thing, too. It, that's what's so tricky and I guess adds another layer of maybe potential empathy or clarity. Because I think that's what people are like. There, there'll be certain people that make posts on my Facebook and I'll get these private messages like, what's wrong with that guy? He's yeah. crazy. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I, I, there's some defense mechanisms going on there, you know. Um and, and they're not doing it intentionally. Right. Well, and it's like, it's complicated, but I definitely think it's probably more our role as white folks to, to try and see what is happening there, what defenses are mm-hmm. happening there. But yeah, it is complicated when, when a person's defense mechanism of denial or oppression is causing literal harm. Like, I think that's right. the thing also, I don't, I don't know if we've said this, but it's like, I guess we also want to talk about this because literally like white supremacy and the perpetuation of it causes literal harm. Like right. it's, it is Good. affecting humans and it's affecting humanity and people are li- like their lives and livelihoods depend on whether or not we figure out how to dismantle white supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. That's so important that you say that because we're, we're having a conversation in the living room on a warm summer night and we're trying to be slightly playful about it, but it is serious. This is not, 
No, I mean, it's, it's like incredible. Like, it's, we're trying to be mediumly playful, but I think the point is that it's like this, we're talking about it because it needs to be done. You're actually the person that told me play can be very serious. Well, that's true. So. That is true. <laughs> Play. I mean, play it's, like, is very serious. it's like setting up the rules to a game and taking those rules seriously in order to enter into the game. Mm-hmm. You know? So it's mm-hmm. like playful, not like flippant. No. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that that's. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to help. I, I, I want people to understand that, that like maybe the I'm just trying to my takeaway that I would one takeaway of a few I'd probably want somebody to have from this episode is to say it's deeper. The issue is deeper than just giving someone more facts. There's something else going on. There. Yes. And that, and yes. we should take that seriously. We should take it seriously, which is why we're having this conversation. Um, on the contrary, all defense mechanisms occur unconsciously outside of our awareness. If we knew we were doing it, the f- defense wouldn't work. <laughs> uh, here's another popular example. In the 1986 movie Heartburn, Rachel Samstadt goes to her hairdresser one day and listening to a story about another woman who didn't recognize the telltale signs that her husband was having an affair. Rachel gasps with a sudden horrified realization. The awareness had been growing in her that husband, Mark, has been unfaithful, but she'd been insisting to herself and to other people that her marriage was a happy one. When she heard the hairdresser's story, the defense finally broke down, and the painful truth she tried to avoid burst into her consciousness. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, whether it's a movie or a story or, like, a lecture or a Facebook thread, like... Something sometimes Something breaks finally through. breaks through. Yeah. Yeah. And then it sometimes can be, like, a flood. Mm-hmm. It's It's scary to have something break through because... It's like going back to my saying, it's like, I was so mad because I was like, everything is a lie. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if all these things I believe were to be true or what I've been denying or not seeing or repressing all of a sudden that comes into awareness, it is dis it's alarming. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's complicated to hold, you know? Yeah. Yes. Yes, and I guess I'm thinking, too, just reiterating something of, like, if you think, again, a a thing about, like, being able to, I guess, approach the idea of defense mechanisms uh, with the idea, this was a Peter Rollins idea that I heard years ago that I love. It's, like, uh, he he called his talk an alien from inner space. I think I've said that before, but, like, we're so obsessed with aliens and the outside evil, and he's, Mm. like, if you can say, like, not only is there sort of this evil inside of you, but you're, you're alien to yourself. Hmm. Like there's something inside of you that's foreign and strange. Hmm. He loves saying like, you're strange too. Like, remember that you're strange. Yeah. The world isn't strange. So we have a hard time like looking at ourselves as strange or weird or different. Yeah. And then if you can think of like, Do a we? M- Oh, I'm saying, I'm, I'm like joking, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, you probably do sometimes. No, I think sometimes. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm making a joke of this. It's yeah. like, in general, my yeah. stance is, I'm strange, I'm, strange, I'm weird, and I'm different. True, you're an alien. <laughs> yeah. Um, I identify as an alien. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, man. that's I could get really into that with you right now. Um, but if you think of, like, America as a body, mm-hmm. and also thinking the alien is not within, the alien is out there, immigrants and uh, and foreign countries, and their weird ways, and their strange thoughts, and their weird political and economic systems and we have the right way. And despite all facts that say the contrary, like there was just an international study that said America is the second worst place in the world to raise a kid. You know, it's like, what? And and you like, America is not looking at that information. It's a defense. Like we don't want to know that. Yeah. We're We're just, we're just going to keep thinking that this is the best place to raise kids. 
Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Oh boy. Lordy, lordy. Okay. Um, should we? Do you want to say anything about repression and denial? <laughs> no, I think we okay. said a lot. I think we. I think we're already getting an interesting pace for ourselves with these. We are. <laughs> we're setting an interesting pace. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way of saying it. Okay, uh, this is one. This one I also think is very American, and it kind of goes with what I was saying Splitting? earlier. Idealization. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Um, so idealization is a defense mechanism. Everybody, think about that. Also, get this book. It's really <laughs> interesting. Why do I do that? <laughs> idealization. At first, it may not seem obvious that idealization is a defense mechanism. Sure, it's a familiar psychological concept, but how exactly is it a defense? In what way does it embody a lie that we tell ourselves in order to ward off pain? In the same way that... Oh, I got, I got to go back and do splitting. I think I skipped it. Yeah, we got to do splitting 100%. Yeah. In the same way that splitting simplifies the problem of ambiguity, that is, the pain of uncertainty and ambivalence... We'll get to that. <laughs> idealization offers a simple solution, in quotes, a solution, to difficulties that unconsciously feel hopeless or too painful to confront. Oh, this is huge. Yeah. That friend of yours who keeps falling in and out of love, who shifts from heady infatuation to bitter disillusionment, have you noticed that he tends to become depressed when each new romance falls apart? You might think that the depression results from disappointment, but in fact, it has been there all along. The failure of idealization as a defense against depressive feelings puts him back in touch with those feelings he had hoped to, ev to evade. In other words, some people turn to the drug-like effects of romantic love as a kind of emotional antidepressant. Their involvement with a relationship partner has little to do with authentic emotional contact or intimacy. What they crave is the high that results from falling in love, using it as escape from pain and depression. The end of a new romance and falling out of love returns them to the feelings that they were hoping to get out of. <laughs> the highs and lows of a seroromantic call to mind the ups and downs commonly associated with bipolar disorder, what we used to call manic depressive illness. In fact, manic depression and serial romance both reflect the flight to an idealized state of mind, infatuation, or mania to escape from unbearable, painful feelings. You may be familiar with the term hypomania, literally below mania. It's not an extreme and dangerous as the states of mania to be found in manic depression, but similar in nature. Idealized romantic love represents a kind of hypomania whose aim may be to cure unbearable feelings of depression. So thinking about it in terms of white supremacy, I do think it's like... I think this is, you hear a lot of, you see a lot of folks. And honestly, I, it would be nice to feel this way of like having an idealized or romantic understanding of the society you live in. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that that's something that so many people have put so much stake in is the yeah. romantic view of. The melting pot, American dream. Yes. This is the place we are, America, we brought democracy mm -hmm. to the world. All of these, You're saying it. these ideas, we've idealized and romanticized. The founding fathers, the whiteness. constitution. Exactly. Yeah, yeah whiteness. Whiteness. And it's become this, this thing in which it is so much is at stake if we lose heavy quotes so much is at stake if we lose it mm -hmm. and i think that's what you where you see this resistance in folks and you see people leaning in instead of leaning in to ways in which society may be failing folks people lean harder harder into the ways in which our society is actually great. Yeah. And you're missing it. You're not seeing who we are. You're not seeing oh. what, what the wonders of <laughs> whiteness or America or the American dreams are. It's like you, they 
you can't accept this painful reality, so therefore let's swing over. Swing ah. on over to the greatness. Oh, you're stressing me out saying it all, all these <laughs> so things. Sorry. It's so true, though. <laughs> so sorry. Uh, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why? And I think we're seeing it on full display. You know, it's like the act of going and giving a speech in front of Mount Rushmore seems like a defense mechanism. Yeah. You know, like yeah. playing up the forefathers and the lineage. And it's like the irony of being a sacred place for indigenous people <laughs> it's like we blew that up and put our own faces on there it's so weird it's, yeah no it's uh, it's all it's like in the idealization it comes with repression it yeah. comes with the denial yeah. you know it's like you deny and idealize you repress and idealize yes boy oh boy oh boy idealize okay <sighs> i just was i was glancing at splitting and i know he says right at the beginning it's the hardest one to describe and he goes into several layers of description well, i think we could describe it that's exactly right yeah do you want to try or should i i mean isn't it just basically this idea that we have a really hard time handling ambiguity we have a hard yeah. time handling uncertainty yeah. and so what our brain does in order to make because it's really hard to handle that, we make things black and white mm -hmm. and allow things to become a this or that issue. We split something down the middle. So then we therefore see something as a split issue and we can't, we don't hold or make space for the gray. A teacher at heart, a I true do. teacher. I am a teacher <laughs> at heart. It's true. <laughs> you always give the greatest description. I'm like, oh, I think that's better than the book. <laughs> um, yeah. Don't. And I think that that's huge. Yeah. Huge. I mean, it's like, it's almost, this is another thing I see pop up on Facebook, like people wanting to fling us back into a binary way of thinking. People say, people say so aggressively as we're getting into the weeds of a discussion. And I guess that's another little mantra that we would say sometimes of like the sign of a great intellect is being able to hold com two competing viewpoints in tension. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so we'll be in the middle of a pretty interesting discussion and somebody will get in the middle of this, like, you know, in Facebook and pop on and be like, look, I appreciate what you guys are talking about, but at the end of the day, it's either this or that. Yes. It's either this or that. Yeah. And they'll bring that up. I'm like, why, why is it either this or that? We're having a nice discussion here, you know? Yeah, and we don't need to, yeah, we don't need to be pinning things yeah. into these categories. I think that this is something that also, like, 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 I'm interrupting, but let's just clarify. Yeah, yeah. To, disagreeing with the person would be better for them. It, it would feel better. That's what, that's what the tension is. It's like, I don't like this ambiguity. Just come right out and say you disagree with the opposing viewpoint because it's either this or that. Right. So, so it'd be, I would respect you more if you just said, clearly, you, you disagree with me. Yeah. And I go, well, I see some validity to your point and some validity to this point. And they hate that. People hate it when you do that. Yeah. You just love to do it. <laughs> I'm not you trying to mess with it. people. I'm just saying. You know Sorry, what's one that you. it's made me think of right now is I just feel like right now I'm hearing a lot of rhetoric of like, this country's divided yeah. and oh, the things are so split. And me I too. do think the splitting does name the fact that like, yeah, we, we, we are in kind of a very polarized climate. Mm -hmm. But then I also think that splitting is happening when we're name when people are like, it's so polarized. We need to just come back together. We need to find this middle. Like there is this splitting yeah. happening of like, uh, I, I don't even know. You're I, onto something. You're onto I, something. I know. It's like, it's <laughs> at the tip of my tongue, this like way of seeing it, but it's like when people do that, they're splitting what's happening. Almost. Yeah. They're, they're changing a, what it's about, but B they're making it be like, to have these divisions is 
a problem. Right. It's now that's that's like the division. That's, the division is the division, you know? <laughs> oh, that's like inception. It's inception, but I feel like that's splitting happening. Yeah. You know, when people are like, can we all like the problem is that we can't no, there are. That's a certain type of. They're not trying to be, but I almost was like a certain type of trolling on Facebook. Where again, where I'm in the middle of a discussion, I've got like three or four people, and we're sort of talking, and somebody will come in and say it's either this or that. That's a version of splitting. But then I do have a certain group of people that will get in and and like essentially discredit the conversation by saying, like, um, we just need to work better at seeing each other's viewpoints. That's the problem. I'm like, well, that's what we're doing. So do you want to contribute? Do you want to actually say something? Yeah. You know, but it's like, oh, the, the problem with society is that we're not listening to each other. I'm like, well, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that they, like something gets split there where it's like, if we're not getting along, then something bad's happening. Mm-hmm. 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 Another very well said. Yeah. I don't know. That's interesting. Splitting. I think splitting is that a nine impulse? We're not getting along. Something bad is happening. That's a huge nine yeah. impulse. That's a huge nine impulse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I also, I mean, man, it would be interesting to think about the enneagram and the white supremacy. Oh, of course. I mean, I, I, I think you and I are both. Everybody, if you didn't listen to this episode, we had this guy named Ben Campbell who, who, who. I really, I feel bad about Ben because like we had such a great conversation with him, and I hope to have him back on soon. Like I want him in the rotation. But because of the nature of our podcast, we always just move right on to the next thing. And that was such a beautiful conversation. And then we're like, okay, now we're doing B-Boys. Now we're doing Facts Medicine. We're just on to the next thing. Yeah. But that was such a great conversation. But Well, it keeps coming up. Yeah. And I'm just like, um, I just, I'm just, I just know he exists out there in New York and I want to talk to him. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was like, nice to talk to. Um, but I think you and I were both very like captivated by this this idea of the the gap between the four and the five being the fire. fire. <laughs> and I do think that's like some of the energy of this podcast where it's like these conversations feel invigorating to us and not threatening. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they go off the rails, but mostly these are the types of conversation it seems that are threatening to people and they don't want to have it. It's, it's like... I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying aside from like maybe it's something we can offer of like, yeah, lean into these conversations. Yeah. We'll, we'll be in the fire. Yeah. We're always <laughs> in the fucking fire. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. We did idealization. Heat of the kitchen here. Heat of the kitchen. It's where the food Cooking gets the cooked. Food. <laughs> uh, okay. Next we're going, next we're going to do a uh, projection. Oh boy. Now I'm going to, I moved past like the strict uh, definition of projection. And I thought this was a really interesting section. Projection of guilt. And I read oh, this to you already, yeah, but like, no, read let's it. read it. It's good. Now that we understand the broader phenomenon, okay, well, I'll just say projection, everybody. It's like projecting your own stuff onto somebody else. We're like almost like vomiting up and putting it on someone else, getting rid of it, flinging it out onto you someone else. You come here, I'm in a bad mood. Yeah. And instead of me saying I'm in a bad mood, I no, say you're, you're late, gonna... I'm pissed at yeah. you, and I'm moody about it. Yeah, and it's my fault. And yep. Now that we understand the broader phenomenon that is a projection, let's take a look at our own our more familiar use of the term where a sense of guilt or bad conscience conscience uh, is disowned and assigned to somebody else. Say Jim forgets to do something he was promised to do on the way home from work. When he walks into the house that evening, his wife, Stephanie asks, where's the dry cleaning? Jim, Jim sheepishly admits he forgot all about it and apologizes because Jim has a habit of forgetting to do such things. I, I like they said forgetting in quotes. Uh, his wife sighs with disgust. I'll suppose I'll just have to pick it up myself tomorrow. Like I didn't already have enough to do. Ooh. Oh, snap. Uh, Jim suddenly feels defensive, turning on Stephanie in anger. I don't see why you're making a federal case out of it. So I forgot. What's a big deal? 
You're always so judgmental. Ever had an exchange like that with a family member, spouse, or friend? I certainly have. At first, Jim admits responsibility and apologizes. Most people can acknowledge guilt under such circumstances, but only, this is the key, only if their apology is immediately accepted without reservation and they are completely exonerated. Yeah. Any lingering, I think I'm like that. <laughs> any lingering criticism or harshness makes the experience of guilt unbearable. Mm. In that case, many people will reject all of sense of responsibility and get rid of their guilt, bad conscience, by projecting it outside of themselves. In this example, Jim's guilty conscience ends up inside of Stephanie, who criticizes him. He then fights her off by turning the tables, making her the bad guy. Jim no longer feels guilty about his own thoughtlessness. Instead, he tries to make Stephanie feel bad for being such a harsh and judgmental person. On some level, Jim knows that he bears responsibility. The projection involves a lie that he tells himself because he can't bear the guilt. You're the bad person, not me. Yes, that's (laughs) it right there. A lie we tell ourselves because we can't bear the guilt. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's that's a huge defense coming up Mm -hmm. as as people say, Hey, you're participating in white supremacy. And th- no, yeah, but but the, but the yeah, the rhythm that they name so well here is Oh yeah, totally. I've seen the movies. I have a black friend. All the things that you know, the cringy I voted for say. Obama. <laughs> yeah, I voted for Obama. <laughs> and people go, "Oh, cool. You're one of the good guys." Yeah, totally. But people say, "Well, that actually doesn't solve it and you're still part of the problem." People are like, "Whoa, hey, you know." And then it starts get the defenses flare. Then the, the defenses flare yeah. up. Projection happens. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's your fault or something, you know. Right, yeah. I mean I Or what are you do what are you doing about it? That's what somebody'll say. You know, it's yeah. like, oh okay, Mr. Lofty, liberal, progressive, woke person, what are you doing? You know? Yeah. And it's like again, defensive, but <laughs> Yeah, I think that one I think this one's huge. I think it's important in in I think guilt is like a a really an interesting and important thing to name in the midst of as we, as folks become aware of white supremacy, I think it's complicated to hold the guilt that one feels. I think it's necessary to mm-hmm. make space for that guilt. I think guilt is, I get, guilt has a purpose. Mm-hmm. Sometimes guilt isn't, I think guilt and shame are different. And mm-hmm. maybe this is a place where it's important to name that it's like shame isn't necessarily like, in, like what's happening. But guilt is good feeling. Guilt helps us to see that we could change Guilt reminds us that we're responsible for how we act around other people. We're responsible to other people. Mm-hmm. We're responsible to make sure that we are being the best we can for other people. I think I do think it's like we need to lean into that maybe. You know, it's like guilt is a feeling no one really wants to feel. Guilt mm-hmm. doesn't feel great, and yet we maybe have things to feel guilty about. And it's important that we make space for that and important that we embrace feeling that sometimes despite that it's uncomfortable. Don't want to. Don't it's want pain. to feel those. It's pain. So we yeah. tell ourselves a lie and we make yeah. it not about ourselves. We push it onto someone else. We push it into something else. We project it out. But it's like, I think some healthy guilt is good. I think both of you and I can like play fast and loose with this stuff. Cause I want people to know that like the, the, the spirit and vibe of this book is saying, like defense mechanisms are what help us function in the world. Like if, if, if we were just to all let this all in at once, it would cause severe crippling depression. Right. And so like, yeah, we can't handle, we cannot handle the truth and all of its complexity all at once. So it's no, like our no. brains have come up with a strategic way for us to like get out the door in the morning, go to work, function. Mm-hmm. But 
I, so I would guess I would just say like, if now that you're now that you become aware of them, uh, you can start to be really strategic in terms of how you pay attention to them and process them. Yeah. Cause I think both you and I can probably get overly indulgent sometimes of like letting the guilt in. And I'm like, Oh, for sure. Now I'm, <laughs> now I'm like now completely it's unfunctional. Now it's yeah. not. Well, I think I think that's where the guilt becomes shame. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's probably what it is. I think it's important to name that it's like guilt is. You're not a bad. I think it's important to name. You're not a bad person. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you aren't a bad person. You're capable of doing greatness. You're capable of of the secret. What? The secret. <laughs> the secret. <laughs> oh my God, bring it back. Bring it back. Um. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but I just think, I think you're right in naming that. It's like, mm-hmm. I think guilt can go to this place of like, well, then I'm just terrible mm-hmm. and I can't do, and it, I can't do anything. And it can reach this headspace of like, I don't know, disillusionment and a headspace of like throwing your hands up and nothing can be done. I don't think that's a good place to be. And I also don't think it necessarily needs to go in the sense of like, Oh, I'm a white. I I participate in white supremacy. Therefore, I'm a bad person, and I should mm-hmm. feel shame about who I am. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it's out of a place of shame of who you are that you're going to be of any help in terms of dismantling white supremacy. I don't think that that's helpful if you're like along the way being like, and I'm horrible, you know, <laughs> right, like that right. that's not helpful. But like being held accountable, being responsible, maybe feeling guilty or or accepting that they you might feel a little yucky about things you've done. Mm-hmm. That's okay. But if it's like, I'm a yucky person, that's where there's that line. I'm a yucky person. Um, I mean, I, I think I've learned a lot from you guys. I, I, I think, I think, I think I like, uh, has, have had defenses and lies that my brain tells me exposed. Yeah. Um, even talking to Reuven recently of like saying, Reuven is our friend that does Reuvenations on the podcast, everybody. But uh, he lives in this house. Um, I was trying to say, oh, just so you know, it's like I'm vulnerable because I have Monogram 5, and it's like I, I like to know things, and it's, it's, it's particularly sad for me when, I, when my ignorance is exposed. or you know. And Reuven was like, yeah, that's really good for me to know, and I'm, thank you for telling me that. He's like, however, it's very admirable when you admit ignorance. And I'm like, oh, my brain doesn't believe that. But I do believe it. I mean, there's two parts of your brain. One part says, like, what? Like, that makes so much sense to me. Yeah. But the lie my brain tells myself is I'm only valuable if when I show I'm up. Competent. Yeah. So if, like, I'm like, what topic are we talking about tonight? I, could, I got my book. I can read about it. I show up with, like, my... I mean, this is almost like a little security blanket, you know? 100% like, security blanket. <laughs> <laughs> and Ruben's saying, actually, I, I think it's really great when you show up and want to learn and have a posture of ignorance really and be like i don't know and i'm like what that's like i don't that's wild to me yeah 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 you that's that's part of i think that's interesting because it's like again this this uh, talking about defense mechanisms enneagram inevitably gets always brought Mm -hmm. up Mm -hmm. but it is it's like naming and seeing that yeah competency is your mania Mm -hmm. you know it's what Mm -hmm. you're fixated on Mm -hmm. so it's like it's helpful to let people know so they can make space. And yet also the work is to transform out of that. The work is to not, is like your personal work is to 
dismantle this idea that competency is value. Yeah. You know? So it's like, it's, it's interesting being friends in this journey of transformation and Enneagram and, you know, becoming these people. It's like, as we, as we make space, we also want to make space for getting out of these, (laughs) these things, you know, getting out of the loops in our heads, you know? How do we do it? How do we do it? Dang. Okay. One conversation, one podcast at a time. One conversation, another 112 podcast episodes, everybody. What the heck is that all about? (laughs) <laughs> 112 podcast episodes how many hours of conversation just on the mic too many that's wild okay here's Not the enough. big one here comes here oh, comes this is scott's my, this is i mine. know what it's gonna be because oh. i can sense it intellectualization this is a creepy one <laughs> especially if you feel like you do it <laughs> um and this is definitely something i absolutely see probably the most prevalent on facebook from so many people yeah coming yeah. in with their arguments facts, and their stats. facts yeah Thinking it through, it's it kind of, and like, obviously, honestly, I'm pr- probably primarily interacting with other white men my age who mm-hmm. are coming in trying to solve the problem with their intellect, mm-hmm. you know? Here we go. And then maybe we'll wind down with you talking about introjection a little bit. Uh, yeah, I can briefly okay. mention it. While rationalization, we're not going to get into that. We're just going to get intellectual, like intellectualize. Rationalization is like baby intellectualization. <laughs> <laughs> While rationalization as a defense mechanism offers explanations for specific facts that are more plausible than true, intellectualization seeks to keep the entire spectrum of disturbing emotions at bay. The former might be thought of as the occasional white lie we tell ourselves. That's rationalization. The latter, an ongoing system that embodies a big ongoing lie. (laughs) Listen to this. No disturbing emotions here, only dispassionate thought. (laughs) Rationalization is a discrete occasional defense, whereas intellectualization pervades and defines one's entire character. Holy smokes. Sigmund Freud never used the word intellectualization, although he clearly understood that the intellectual process may be used for purposes of defense. His daughter, Anna Freud, devoted an entire chapter of her book, The Ego and the Mechanisms of Defense, to the subject of intellectualization at puberty. She believed that the increased intellectual, scientific, and philosophical interests of the period represent attempts at mastering the drives and the connected emotions, viewing such as an effort as relatively normal during adolescence. If you grew up with the late 1960s TV series Star Trek, as I did, or if you've made acquaintance with it through televised repeats, movie sequels, or DVDs, then you're familiar with the character of Mr. Spock, the half-Vulcan who consciously... And I made a video of myself naming five different characters that reside inside me. I did this in One seminary. of them was Spock. Data, who is essentially the modern-day version of Spock. Mm. He's a robot. <laughs> And this was before I knew Enneagram. And I was like, I was like, I know this character. And Mar- we got to that when Marissa saw the video. I was like, oh my gosh, that character. You know, like, <laughs> I'm just talking rational. Like, you know, this is, you know. You're floating into that headspace. Yep. The half Vulcan who consciously feels little emotion and brings a powerful intellect to bear on every situation in contrast to Captain Kirk, who so often seems driven by his passions. Better than perhaps any other character in popular culture, Mr. Spock demonstrates intellectualization and how it comes to define one's entire character. Mm -hmm. You sometimes hear such people described as cerebral, or we might talk about someone who lives too much in their head. I find it useful to think about intellectualization in terms of our attention and where we direct it. The person who intellectualizes her experience devotes so much attention to the thoughts passing through her head 
that she doesn't have room to notice what's going on in her body. Taking note of bodily sensations helps us to recognize what we're feeling. A welling up of tears, tightness in the chest, quivery breath. These sensations let me know that I feel sad. But if I'm too busy with my thoughts, I may not be able to notice those sensations and will thus remain unaware of emotions. Even if I do register some kind of sadness, I may quickly shift my attention away from the bodily sensation into my thoughts in order to get away from them. In other words, intellectualization is a massive and ongoing effort to divert attention away from the bodily places where we notice our feelings and into the emotion-free zone of the intellect. Ooh. There it is. The emotion-free <laughs> zone. It, yeah, it removes you from mm-hmm. the reality. Mm-hmm. It removes you from the, the lived experience. <sighs> yeah. 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 And then, I mean, and I guess let's just swing it right back over to white supremacy. Swing it. Like, um, I guess I just want to say sometimes when we talk about these things, we just need to cry. Yeah. And sometimes somebody, yeah. you can see somebody write this. I, we're talking about Facebook tonight, but you know, anything, a Reddit thread, a, a, a debate on TV. I mean, honestly, in the biggest sense, it's these characters. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about a real life character. Spock is not a real life character. And, and Ruben knows what this is. You probably do too. Uh, uh, Jordan Peterson. I don't know. He, he is this sort of like grand conservative intellect. That's like, that's like, in a, in a way, like a, a big massive step above somebody like Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro's like positioned himself as sort of this conservative intellect, but he's sort of a joke. Yeah. Jordan Peterson is like f- actually fairly intelligent, even though I know Reuven would come in and say his thoughts are a bunch of bullshit. But like um, you, you listen to somebody like Jordan Peterson or Sam Harris. People know who these people are. And, and it's like, the ultimate version of the intellectualization, always calm, cool, level-headed, trying to get people back to just the facts and the thoughts and the reality. And it's infuriating. Wow. wow, You're getting emotional. All we have to do is think about this. You know, all we have, Oh yeah, I see. Oh, you're emotional. Mm." You know, and there's Ben Shapiro goes out to like the women's marches and like, tell me about this. And, and, and he'll, and he'll be standing there and women will be like, this whole society is messed up. And they'll be yelling at him. And he's like, oh, interesting. Well, did, have you ever thought about this? And he's like looking at the camera, see how crazy I'm staying the level headed. I'm having a, I'm having an intellectual conversation. Yeah, and yeah. you just want to look in through the lens of this and be like, I understand you have a bunch of fancy words and you've thought this through. You're just trying to avoid feeling sad. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're trying to avoid being in it with these people. Like maybe, you, maybe you disagree, but like, it's still sad that these women are sad. Like, can you sit there in this can women's you march? Sit in the pain. Yeah, can and be you... like, gosh, I don't understand this, but it seems sad. Yeah, I think that that's, I mean, it's naming something like, I mean, you know, I love to talk about it, like this idea of a discipline of lament. Yeah. You know, in in my, my, my big reference point is like my reconciliation courses, like we spent big chunks of time like talking about the necessary and important like nature of lament and bringing lament into justice work. Like you cannot do justice work without sitting in the emotions, without bringing it into the lived experience, mm-hmm. without, yeah, wailing, mm-hmm. crying, yelling. These okay. folks are out here. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think that it's, I don't know. I, I think that this is a huge one. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably one of the biggest ones because it allows people to kind of, it allows people to be removed mm-hmm. and, and not, and not, 
I think it can keep people. It, this is this is a huge place in which it keeps people, and it's probably part of the reason why people are divided because it's like we can just be having these like chess matches up in space mm-hmm. all the way up well here said. while things are happening below and people's lives are being affected while nothingness is happening in the air above, you know? (laughs) (laughs) No, just to bring that back down to like church, you know, growing up in a Presbyterian church, a lot of these Protestant traditions pride themselves in why I I was always proud to consider myself like sort of a Presbyterian is like, it's more intellectual, less, Mm -hmm. you know, it's so interesting talking to a Sean and being like what his black Pentecostal upbringing taught him was to experience God through the body and through sound and noise and movement. And it's like, that's not what it taught me. Mine was like, let's just wrap our heads around this. We can, we can think about God and we can talk about God. Thinking about God is experiencing God. And we can talk about justice. Well, yeah. (laughs) And I think that that's another thing too of intellectualization. It can be both a defense in terms of people who like want to deny white supremacy or don't want to do commit to anti-racism work, but I also think it can function as a defense and the fact of some people, and I would maybe put myself in this category, like as we continue to think about which ones we might do, Mm -hmm. like I can intellectualize my anti-racism work. Mm -hmm. I can intellectualize the work I need to do in dismantling racism. I can make it about posts. I can make it about ideas. I can make it about, I know the right things. Mm -hmm. I, I have the quote unquote right perspective on this. I, I do know that I've read these books. I, you know, I, I think we can really quickly delude ourselves. Delude? Delusion? Delusion is the word I'm looking for. (laughs) Delude? delude mm. ourselves mm. into thinking we're doing when <laughs> we're doing justice work when we're maybe just intellectualizing about it. I mean, we're just talking about it. We're just putting empty words, you know, it's like, it's, it's, is it doing the work? You know, <laughs> I think that's where I, I find myself thinking about it and being like, I think I'm guilty <laughs> of guilty, guilty, shame. no shame, just guilt. Uh, <laughs> Guilty of intellectualizing, for sure. You're so brave to admit that on the podcast. I know. <laughs> I was channeling JJ right there. Our friend JJ would say it like that. You're so brave. Um, no, my I got hardcore called out by my daughter literally probably yesterday, just very recently, and she was sort of telling our family what we what she needs from us. Like she's been going to counseling, and so it's like very helpful to be like getting the strength to be like, here's what I need from you all. Here's what I need from you, dad. Here's what I need from you, mom. And like, uh, <laughs> she was like, I, we need to have more conversations. She was saying this to my wife, Marissa. <laughs> and she looks at me and goes, I'm not talking about starting a conversation. And then you go, what's a conversation? <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh. So called out by my daughter. She's like, like a real conversation, not questioning what a conversation is. Yeah. Like, I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> That's a defense, a yeah. <laughs> I, know. I know, it's tough. No, I mean, just like physically getting myself, and I'm not patting myself on the back in any way. I'm just saying like the act of physically going down and going to a protest for me has been good instead of being like, what's a protest? Because I can be like, well, let me wrap my head around that first and... Someday, maybe, if I can figure out the origins of protests and exactly the right way to behave when you show up and yeah. what is yeah. what is it going to accomplish. And that's another thing. I mean, I don't know if that's a white way of approaching it, but, like, I am constantly asking, like, what's this accomplishing? Hmm. Like, it has to accomplish something. I think that might be kind of a white approach. Yeah. You know? No, I think so. It's like this looking for these, 
results. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Finale? Introjection? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I Does think it it's apply? A weird, I think it can, and I will name how I think it applies okay. for me as I think about it. So introjection is the defense mechanism that is probably most linked to an Enneagram 4. So I'm like, what? When do I interject? And I do think I interject a lot, and I think I <laughs> definitely interject in how it relates to white supremacy. So I have two thoughts. Two kay. thoughts about Okay, okay, here we go. Introjection, introjection, I'll use my own words. I don't really know if this is the best definition. But <laughs> you sure own words. The yeah. the idea and the way I understand it is this honestly, I I can the lift experience of it is like eating. It's mm. like munching. Mm -hmm. It's swallowing the words people say is swallowing something whole. And then it becomes a part of you to the point where you think it's coming from inside of you. Hmm. So I think for me, as I think about my own experience, especially my own experience of being, like, okay, throw myself back to sophomore year, Macy. A big year. Take a very big year. I want like a montage in heaven like someday year for Macy. of how many times that sentence gets said in this podcast. <laughs> my sophomore my year. My sophomore year. Sophomore year. Um, no, I mean, it was like the year that I like just let myself be myself. Um, and also learned about, I mm. like the whole world got blown up. Mm -hmm. Um, I think for me, as I began to study racism, study colonialism, study all these systems of oppression, I think the, it's almost like the opposite of intellectualization, intellectualization. It's like the emotions and the hurt and the pain of it all. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm like embarrassed. This is embarrassing as I say it. And it's like, it's weird to admit, but I'm just going to be out here and be honest. It almost becomes this own thing that's energizing. Hmm. Like interjecting stories of pain I could think something's coming from within myself. You know, mm. I think of myself, I was the kid in my class who was like crying every time, mm -hmm. you know, like I left and needed to cry for a long time mm. and like felt and experienced the pain as if it was coming from inside mm. myself. And I think that it is both, maybe a good thing in the sense it was like the idea of lament was super easy for me. I was like, yes, lament. I'm lamenting. I'm making art. I'm crying. I'm so sad. I'm feeling this. I'm feeling as if it's my own story. But then it's like, this isn't my own story though. This Ooh. isn't my experience. Ooh. Dang. What is that for me to almost bring myself into that space as if it is my own? And then I think as I grow older, I'm, I'm really aware of myself as a white queer person. And I think, and I'm like mostly speaking to like my fellow queers out there, I think it's really easy. It's really easy for marginalized folks to somehow kind of combine or assume or I don't know what I'm trying to say, but like... Uh, take on the struggle or feel as if your struggles are the same mm. when they're so, so not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My whiteness serves me every fucking day, mm -hmm. all the time. Um, much more 
my whiteness is helping me much more than my queerness is hindering me. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wow, what a great sentence. And I I think it's really easy for, and I don't know if this is interjection or what it is, but it's easy for me to potentially swallow this idea as if struggle is my own specific, like people's struggles, I could take it on as like marginalization and swallow that and that become from within inside me. And as if I get it as if I understand the experience of people of color, or I understand the experience of black folks. And that's just not reality. That's not true. And so I think it's really, really important for me to do the work of realizing what is my own experience and what isn't my experience. And I can be empathetic and I can enter spaces of lament, but I need to be aware of when I'm blurring the lines of thinking that something's become my own and it's not. You know, like I need to find, I need to make sure I'm, I know my story and understand other folks' stories and I'm in making that really clear, not merging them. So I think that's where interjection as defense mechanism is like, it's honestly probably one of the biggest ones Mm -hmm. in my own journey with white supremacy. And I think that it can also, in in another way, it can, it can keep me in a space of, it can keep me in the space of lament. It can keep me in the space of feeling. It can keep me in that, which I'm like, I think that that's really important. I honestly think it's like, we forget feeling a lot. So I'm like, it's really important. But for my own self, I can get just, that's it. That can be the end. And mm. I just don't think that is. You know, I know that action and moving into a space of feeling, but then, it's, um, it's moving out of the withdrawn. It's moving out of this centered self. It's like I can become so wrapped up in the experience of struggle that it's coming from within inside me and I'm experiencing it. And then I'm now the center of the story. Mm-hmm. And now I have to deal with the emotions I'm feeling in myself. And I'm now just sitting by myself lamenting for myself <laughs> instead of lamenting as a means of igniting justice work hmm. man that was good that was that, i mean that was a lot of really cringy self-awareness it's good stuff sorry sorry everybody i no, no it's good the way you describe it seems so real and wow, it's it's one of the ones where i don't relate very much it's one of those ones when we start talking about it like in the early days of wondering if i'm a four and yeah. i'm like that's not something i do um, it's my bread and butter, baby. Yeah. My bread and butter. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I think it's just, I, I honestly know as we're so talking about it, I'm like, this is the one that probably is the biggest in my life. And it's embarrassing, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's also real. And introduction just feels like a f- it's just a weird thing. It's kind of yeah. gross as you think about it. Well, all these defenses in their way, I mean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think they feel. I mean, I mean, I think the ones that hit, hit you the most are the feel the grossest. You know? I was thinking when you were saying interjection earlier that like I don't really see it playing into white supremacy but now that you've said it out loud like that I wonder if it's interjection that causes people to say all lives matter people are like we're sad we're, we have struggle and, and we're like yeah everybody does I do too mm-hmm. I, I'm also struggling oh I, and no no I didn't have white privilege because I struggled growing up and my family struggled They're, maybe I didn't have any privilege maybe and you're struggled I struggled too I also struggled you're crying I'm crying oh yeah you know it's like no yeah. it's different it's yeah. not it's not the it's same it's not your struggle <laughs> yeah yeah 
I don't know. That's a wonder. I'm not entirely sure about that because I just wonder how interjection works on a on a, like a national level. But it definitely, I can definitely see it happen, like robbing someone of their experience. I I just think as you're saying it too, like empathy is such an art form because like mm-hmm. what you're trying to do. Interjection is an empathy. I think yeah. that's the thing. Yeah. Interjection can, can feel be, like it. it can feel like it and people can perceive it as it. Yeah. But I think it's like, <laughs> wow, this person is so empathetic, but whoa, this is a lot. <laughs> but whoa, like <laughs> empathetic to a point of weird self-indulgence. <laughs> Why is this person crying so much? <laughs> I think I think honestly, some good empathy would be a merging of our two styles. Oh, I agree. It, yeah, it'd be like keeping the person's emotions at bay, intellectualization or whatever it is, like uh, you know, go, going up in my hot air balloon, but not too much. Yeah, and then also, you know, feeling their emotions with them, but not too much. Right, like holding that intention. Like your emotions aren't my emotions. Right, but I'm not saying that as a way. Like I don't know what you're sad about. You know, but. You're like, man, you're so sad. I'm not sad right now. I am sad you're sad. Right. Those aren't my emotions. Right, exactly. It's like you know? when, with interjection, it's like, wow, you're really sad. Now I'm really sad. And now like, I'm actually more sad. And now I'm actually more <laughs> and sh- sad. you should be more sad. Look how sad I am. <laughs> For real, this happened real. to me. I'd be so sad. Look. <laughs> You should be so sad. And you get praised. I get praised <laughs> for being empathetic. And I'm, I think now as I like look back, I'm good. like, not like, I don't know phrases at all. It's like, it's full indulgence on my, ha- my behalf. It's full indulgence. Oh, this is good. This is a good finale. <sighs> yeah. Okay. So that's interjection. There it is. I would say I have a few like wind down tips in mind. Closing thoughts is closing what we're thoughts. doing now. Yeah, Scott's thoughts. got some winding tips. I'll, I'll, I'll put my closing thoughts in tip form. Okay. <laughs> um, just cause I do think this is something we talk about a lot. And I do think there are certain things in my life that I am completely and utterly tragically incompetent in. And this is one of the areas where I feel slightly, Shame. slightly non-competent, slightly non-incompetent. Is what I'd want Slightly to say. competent? Slightly competent. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to soften a potential nice thought about myself. But um, I the phrase that's been helpful to me is this is this phrase that Eugene, Peter, Eugene Peterson ripped off of a, a woman writer, which I feel so bad now because I'm not going to give the woman writer credit now. My wife would tell me. It might have been Emily Dickinson. I'm actually pretty sure it is Emily Dickinson. But she talked about this idea of telling it slant. And I do think it's like a Jesus way of of confronting people with parables. Mm -hmm. Like if you come at something in a sideways way, Mm -hmm. not the obvious way and not in the blatantly aggressive way, but in a way that catches them off guard and lowers the defense, that's the best chance you have. Now, I don't know exactly how to do that. I'm just saying you can do that by like acknowledging someone and, and, and helping them bring their defenses down. Like saying, I understand what you're saying. Your intentions are good or blah, blah, blah. Um, but, it, but whether it's art or an experience or an mm-hmm. encounter or a walk, you know, I don't know anything where, where somebody is going to hear something like that. What that, what that person said at the beginning when it was talking about denial, she was denying her own f- husband's affair, but when she heard about someone else's affair, she was able to see it f- for the first time. Yeah, yeah. So, like, what is it that's going to help someone break down that defense? I just think it's going to take a lot of creativity. Mm-hmm. And everybody plays a role. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like there are politicians and there are philosophers and there are justice workers and there are, 
educators, there's Edu- artists, yeah. and there's... And I guess maybe just saying, in, in, sh- and you're seeing it all play out. Baristas, mm-hmm. yes. And you're seeing talking heads on TV on Fox News and CNN and all these places debating and yelling at each other. You know, and I just, I would encourage people to think about if, if you've listened to this episode and come this far and you're interested in defense mechanisms, now you go out into the world and you have these conversations again and you're aware of these defense mechanisms in yourself. So think about your own, you know, participation in white supremacy. But as you're having these conversations, just try to get creative about it. If, if my question is, if you want to act, enact real change, yeah. if you want to help change someone's mind, including your own, yeah. be, get, be more creative with your conversations. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. if you're just wanting to, to get the moral satisfaction of yelling at someone and telling them that their ideas are stupid, maybe that will help you feel satisfied in the moment, but it's Split. not going to change anybody's mind. You're splitting. Mind. You're yeah. splitting when you do that. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> I have the answers. You don't. I'm telling you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just just try to get creative and, and approach these things a little bit more sideways and artistically, I guess. Uh, and I guess also appreciate that it's going to take, in order to change someone's mind and societies in general, it's going to take all forms. There is no right, right way to change someone's mind or get at this topic. You have to appreciate that. Some, like my, my non-affirming stance towards LGBTQ folks started to come down when my brother just looked at me in the car one day and called me an asshole. He's like, you are an asshole. And I was like, what? <laughs> it was just, it was utterly confusing. I mean, nobody had said that. Yeah. Everybody, everybody like patted me on the back for my like homophobic views. Boo! Yeah. <laughs> everybody like, whoa, that's really great. You're a Christian. Oh my gosh. You know, and my brother just looked at me one day and said, you're an asshole. And I was like, that, that, that broke it down. I was like a wall. So I guess that's that for that. And that moment was coming out at slant instead of like, Intellectualizing or be like, you know, let me just talk to you about no, that viewpoint. Like, it's like, you're, you're an actually asshole. Sound like an asshole. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you are discriminating this group <laughs> yeah, of people. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's my little takeaway. Do you want to say one? Um, I don't know if it's a tip. I don't know if I have a tip. A I didn't. I didn't plan a tip. <laughs> I gave. Um, I gave. I'm so a tip. sorry. <laughs> I guess I just have closing. I don't. I don't. Honestly, I don't know what my closing thoughts are. I'll think of them right Let's now. See. Here we go. Real time. Um. Hot off the press. I think it's. I think it continues to be. These conversations continue to be a recommitment. I think, and just like a reminder of the work. And I also think that it's a really helpful. I think. So I'm starting grad school in the fall, starting like psychology, and we talk about the enneagram. We talk about defense mechanisms, and I think I do yoga. You know, and it's like so much of what I find myself gravitating towards, and what I'm really passionate about is cultivating awareness Mm -hmm. cultivating becoming better people honestly (laughs) cultivating health cultivating thriving um and i think it's really easily for me to isolate that to like individual psychologies individual people like we're growing together and i just think i'm really happy that we put these things together because i think it needs to be brought together Mm -hmm. like as like the work of the enneagram the work of undoing defense mechanisms, all these things necessarily involves also dismantling white supremacy. Mm. I don't think we could be like, oh, I'm, I'm doing the work of the Enneagram and ignoring this work towards anti-racism. I think it's, it's to me, I think it's a good reminder and like emphasis brought of why we do this kind of work. Like why, why, what does awareness bring? What is the point of understanding defense mechanisms? Is it just so you yourself can, when you're by the time you're 80, feel good and 
have be able to meditate and feel at peace with yourself or is it because you want to actually change the way that like you're affecting society you know change the way you're participating in society so I think I think for me this is just a good reminder and like perspective shift or perspective shift or like additional lens in which I want to approach all these systems that we use towards self-development. I want to bring it, I mean, I think it's good and healthy and necessary for me to bring it outside of myself or outside Mm -hmm. of my immediate circle Mm -hmm. and bring it into kind of the bigger context. I think that's my final thoughts. So good. There's this so episode. Good. I think I think that's good for you. Like what I heard you say just now is like a lot more of like both of us like getting out of just the intellect and the emotion mm-hmm. and the, and getting in more into action. Yeah. You yeah. Know? These doing repressed folks, we need we need to move more towards action. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Man, okay. I have a fun way of like ending. Okay. And I think I'll find this on YouTube and insert it. And and look, I am not calling out any sort of political party. It's just a it's just a memory that hit me. And I remember thinking, if we did defense mechanisms one day, I'm like, there's a great example of a public person. And it was Nancy Pelosi at a press conference. And as she's walking away, she she's ended the press conference. She's like, thanks for listening. And I was just like, gosh, these highly competent. I consider Nancy Pelosi a highly competent person are all still victims to defense mechanisms. Yes, yes. Victims or whatever, susceptible. Um, And I was like, what the heck is going on here? And so, like, she's walking away from the podium, and this guy off mic yells from the crowd, like a news reporter, why do you hate Donald Trump so much? And she just turns around shocked, like this huge look on her face. I want, If I can find I'll leave the audio to close us out. Yeah, no, that's good. But she just comes out, comes back to the podium, shaking, Oh, no, no, I don't hate. I'm a Catholic. I don't hate. So how dare you accuse me? How dare you accuse me of hate? Splitting. Denial. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, first of all, just walk away. I mean, this doesn't need to be addressed. But like, why so? First of all, now I'm getting into Idealization. What does hate mean? I mean, you're that clear just because the Bible tells you not to hate that you don't hate? You don't want to say that you have a little bit of hatred for yeah. Donald Trump yeah. residing in your heart somewhere? Yeah. It's like absolute denial. No, no, no. I don't hate. I don't do that. How dare you accuse me? I'm like, this is a weird interaction. It's a very weird interaction. I feel like it'd be so interesting to end to this hear, episode with you hearing it. That sounds good. And maybe I'll put like a little beat underneath it or something. We'll see. Thanks We're for listening, creative. everybody. Slant. We do not know what our episode is next week, do we? Is it Bjork? Is it Bjork? Is it Bjork? Probably, it but I feel like Bjork. I need a little bit more time oh, <laughs> to deep dive. I stood up for that. <laughs> maybe it won't be Bjork, but Bjork is coming. <laughs> Bjork will come soon, everybody. Okay. Thanks for listening. Fire pit time. A bullet from the back of a bush took Medgar Evers' blood. A finger fired the trigger to his name. A handle hit out in the dark. A hand set the spark. Two eyes took the aim behind a man's brain. But he can't be blamed. He's only a pawn in their game The South politician preaches to the poor white man You got more than 
the blacks don't complain You're better than them You've been born with white skin They explain And the Negro's name Is used, it is plain For the politician's gain As he rises to fame And the poor white remains On the caboose of the train But it ain't him to blame He's only a pawn in our game The deputy sheriffs, the soldiers, the governors get paid And the marshals and cops get the same But the poor white man's used in the hands of them all like a tool He's taught in his school From the start by the rule That the laws are with him To protect his white skin To keep up his heat So he never thinks straight About the shape that he's in But it ain't him to blame He's only a pawn in their game From the poverty shacks He looks from the cracks to the tracks And the hoofbeats pound in his brain And he's told how to walk in a pack Shoot in the back with his fist in a clinch To hang and to lynch To hide neath the hood To kill with no pain Like a dog on a chain He ain't got no name But it ain't him to blame He's only a pawn in their game Today Medgar Evers was buried From the bullet he caught You'll see by his grave On the stone that remains Carved next to his name His epitaph plain Only upon 